Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob here, and I've got Ben Parr with me today. Captivology, the science of capturing people's attention, and the title of the book grabbed my attention for sure. So for fun, let's define what the heck is captivology, Ben. Captivology is at its core the science and psychology of attention and why we pay attention to certain people and products and most of all how to utilize that science to captivate others and to captivate your audience whether you're a teacher whether you're a entrepreneur a marketer a aspiring musician everybody needs attention for something because attention has become the fundamental currency of the modern economy yeah and it's getting harder and harder because everybody basically has the ability to have their own broadcast network with podcasting and social media really the 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 problem is getting through a cacophony of uh, redundant stupid uh ill-informed information to getting to the nuggets of gold that uh are getting hidden by all the garbage that's out there oh it's it's so difficult for people nowadays to sift through the noise and there's just a couple interesting stats when I, I've heard over the years. In my book, I talk about how in 1986 we were exposed to approximately seven newspapers worth of information. Seven, sorry, about 70. By 2006, that number had grown to over 176. And I was at Microsoft last month, and they told me the number is actually now seven full DVDs worth of information we're exposed to daily. Yeah, and basically the way the human brain works is at a certain point – uh, it just automatically filters that stuff out. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of information, branding messages, uh, sales messages, personal messages that we're not even seeing. We're just totally unconscious of it and don't even realize it. Um, what do you think is the best way for people to handle this onslaught of information? Is it to be more focused? Is it to really be super picky about the people they actually have on social media? What do you think is a good strategy? Well, it's about the combination. It's a combination. Uh, there's two, probably two big things. One is the filters to filter down to the information that you actually want because there's so much of it. And whether it's technological or personal, uh, the bigger one, though, I think, is removing distractions. And the big issue right now is uh, when is is notifications. And so, I like to tell people that attention psychologically hasn't changed all that much. When we were hunter gatherers, our attention was always scattered. We were always looking in the surroundings, looking for certain things, specifically things that were out of place because they were either going to be threat, like a saber-toothed tiger, maybe, or food you know maybe it's a squirrel and we have those exact same instincts today but are but the world has changed so much there's no saber-toothed tigers to stalk us but we still have the same propensity for novel information and so that threat's been replaced by smartphone notifications and if you want something that's really destroying your productivity just look at your phone and look at all the notifications are happening all the time you have to find a way to turn them off or to um Keep them away from you when you're trying to do those high-level tasks because we are terrible at multitasking. The research shows it every single time. Multitasking is the is the enemy of productivity. Yeah, it's it's really funny because I remember years ago there were several books put out about how to multitask, multitasking your way to millions, blah, blah, blah. And now years later we realize, oops, that was a huge mistake. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just a there's just so much science now. Now we're we're learning more and more. But yes, multitasking. There was another study that found that those who label themselves as heavy multimedia multitaskers are the least effective when it comes to completing tasks and completing them accurately. Mm. To me, this is a book that does say captivology, but it's more being conscious as well about how to manage uh, your brand, your personal brand, how to manage and understand how to communicate. For you, why did you feel this book was so critically important to, to bring out now? Because attention really is the fundamental currency of the modern economy, because nothing gets done without having some or keeping somebody's attention. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in. Attention is a necessity now. And it's compounded by the fact that it's just harder than ever to get attention. You just think about how many, you know, amazing people haven't been come to the limelight, whether they're scientists, they're doctors, they're musicians, because they didn't know how to effectively put their content or their research or whatever they were doing out there. And it's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, books like this really help you communicate better, communicate more efficiency, uh, efficiently, um, help you get your word out. But then what happens is that more and more people get better at communicating and then you're getting even more targeted messaging coming towards you. So my question is, is, Okay, you go through the book, you, you utilize a lot of these theories and, and, and uh, strategies to be heard more. What happens when people catch up? Are we going to have to go to a newer level or a higher level? One of the things I talk about is understanding how attention works and how um, it's evolving. And so um, I've been asked this question before, and I don't think of it as an arms race as much as it is a learning experience. The difference between now and 50 years ago is that we know so much more about the human brain. And that knowledge makes us better and has the potential to make us better. I don't think of it as more information is going to make us more distracted over time. I think of it as we're going to adapt and evolve to this kind of information and really focus in on the, just the information that we really want. And expertise is going to become more important as an example. And we're going to be looking to experts to really help us fill in the gaps that we can no longer fill in because there's more and more disciplines, more and more information, more and more areas that we have to cover. And so it's – I don't think of it necessarily, like I said before, as an arms race as much as a shared learning experience across humanity. <laughs> you know, you brought up a point there about you know people being more focused. And I remember way back in the day in Toronto when I was a photographer, the whole thing there was you can't be a generalist. You can't shoot weddings. You can't do portraits. And you can't be a, a commercial photographer doing uh, tabletop shooting. So it seems to me like it's almost become the same thing with uh, communication. You have to become an expert in a wafer-thin specialty subject matter to have the ability to break through the bandwidth. And, and you can't be a generalist anymore. You can't just be spouting off on Twitter and, and on your other social media platforms uh, one day about food, the next day about uh, how to be a social media specialist, and the next day about uh, graphic design, and then the next day about something else, da, 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 whatever grabs your attention. Uh, what do you think? So there's a balance here. First of all, the, my research, and I talk a lot about this in Captivology, shows that 
Um, one of the triggers in my book is called repu- is the reputation trigger, and it's that we pay attention to reputable sources, but specifically experts. When we are listening to experts, our brains literally uh, start shutting down because we are basically offloading our processing power to the expert. We're, they're a shortcut, and you think about it, it makes sense in some ways because when, if a doctor is telling us about a specific disease, we should probably listen to him or her because she's going to know more about it than we are. Uh, but there's a double-edged sword to all that. Now, in the modern world, when you're trying to uh, be captivating and have people listen to you, being establishing yourself as an expert in one or two key areas really, really helps. It's the difference between you people going, you going out for jobs and people coming to you. Um, you still need some of the generalist knowledge, of course, though, because you, first of all, like in college, you need to know which direction you want to go. But I do recommend students, they take a direction, they really run with it. The other thing is there are certain areas where generalists can help be helpful in terms of, for example, entrepreneurship. When you're starting a company, you're going to have to know a lot of different skills really quickly. And I think of it less as being a generalist and becoming uh, – entrepreneurship is a unique thing where you have to become an expert in 10, 12 key areas really, really quickly if you want to succeed. And so I guess it is all really about um, establishing expertise. It's just how deep uh, can you go in a specific area versus – based on the job, right? If you're going to be a mathematician, you better go very deep in math. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to have to go a little bit lighter, but in more areas that are going to matter. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that's why a lot of entrepreneurs fail at the very beginning. You're a young entrepreneur. Uh, you do something, you fail, but you learn something. You've learned a, 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 an ability to do something very, very well. Whatever it is, is either bookkeeping or pitching for money or organizing a business or whatever. And then the next time you do a business is, oh, okay, I already know how to do that. So you push forward that, but then you realize, oh, but now I have to learn another skill set. And so entrepreneurs that are, you know, older, 35, 45, 55, they've got this amazing skill set that backs them up. So when they go into situations, they say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then it becomes more of a trust issue. And that's really what my next question is. There, I think there's a big, big uh, thing about trust right now is people get burnt all the time with information. How do you be perceived as a trust figure with your core information and uh, getting people's attention? So two interesting things. First one is that uh, out of Edelman, Edelman the uh, giant PR firm, they do an annual trust survey, uh, and what they do is they try to figure out who do we trust the most and is trustworthy experts. And if you're interested in the subject of trust, I really recommend reading the Edelman Trust Survey uh, every single year. It's really fascinating research. But consistently, over and over again, the number one spokesperson, type of spokesperson we trust, is the expert, either technical or academic. And much, much higher. It's in the 60-70% range than, say, CEOs, which are in the 30% range, and government officials, which are somewhere in below in the basement. And so that establishing that expertise is also going to make you more trustworthy. Now, the big thing I think about when it comes to trust is delivering your promise. If you're going to do or say something and you don't deliver on that, that's where you break trust. And it can be devastating. And I've seen it before and you just have to if you're going to do something you uh you better deliver and don't promise things you can't deliver you know it's very funny 
the concept of trust, as soon as you actually use that word to describe something you're about to do, it actually backfires on you. It's like, trust me. And then suddenly everyone goes, ooh, why shouldn't I trust this person? <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's it's a slippery slope there to try and get trusted. And you're right. It's like, oh, I'm going to do X. And then you do it. But if you're if you're dealing with somebody that's not very trusting or you have a new relationship with them, that's a very, very small incremental steps. So what happens if you have to move forward relatively quickly um, in a, your new CEO in an organization and you have to get the people on the C-suite to trust you and move forward? Or if you don't move them forward or, or your agenda forward, you're not going to be perceived as a very good CEO. So how, how do you escalate trust? How do you escalate your agenda? <laughs> Well, there's no way to escalate uh, gen, uh, trust in the long term. That's by proving your actions. But I will say there are – like I, I think about one thing I talk about in the book. And so here's a fun little thing. And research shows that if – that merely holding – if you give somebody a hot cup of coffee or tea, that person will subconsciously be more giving towards you because we associate – unconsciously the physical sensation of warmth with the interpersonal feeling of warmth and that's a, like a little trick but the bigger thing about it is simply have getting people to like you we work with people that we like we uh respect people that uh you know that we're friend that we're friendly with we don't want somebody who comes in and starts barking orders You've got to establish those relationships really early and listen to what their problems are. If you're coming in as a CEO rather than you giving directives, you should be sitting down and listening to what your new employees are saying and what's going on and what is happening at the company so that you can figure out the course and the direction to take things. Mm, yeah, you know. So true. And I think some of the best uh, strategies are the simplest strategies and, and – it's it always go back you know I, I do so many book reviews and again and again and again this comes up so many times that it's about listening not about blasting people and try to be the loudest or the be the sneakiest or the most clever it's about generally listening to people with almost like an open heart and and being earnest about it and say oh okay I get your problem let's the two of us figure out how to solve that problem. And some of the best salespeople I've ever uh, worked with or, or had the opportunity to chat with, that's their philosophy. They just do it naturally. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's hard to fake, you know, friendship, honestly. So you just got to be active and proactive and getting to know your team, especially early on, and uh, listen to their problems rather than you talk all the time. I want to dig down into the book. I mean, it, it, it's really nice that you've broken it down into all these different triggers. Um, and it's surprising you didn't use the uh, the classic eight triggers to success or whatever. So actually, you've got seven here, right? Because you've got the first one is uh, three strategies for attention, and then it goes trigger, 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 trigger. There are, there are seven triggers and three stages to attention, and so eight chapters. Okay, so the way that it's broken down here is – You've got the attention at the beginning, then you've got the seven triggers, and then uh, you've got conclusion, acknowledgement, some notes and stuff like that. For you, what's the most important thing is to, for people to understand what attention is or to really dig down into the triggers? 
Well, they're they're both important. I usually if. It's not a book I normally recommend people to like go jump from chapter to chapter around like some people do. Um, I would say the first thing people need to do is read the first chapter, which is about how attention fundamentally works. And I think that's more important than – that. that's just fundamentally important to understand both from an attention-grabbing perspective and from a uh, perspective of understanding how your own attention works. And understanding the difference between immediate attention, short attention, and long attention, and the memory systems that control each, and how each are manipulated, and then, uh, and then diving into the triggers afterwards. I, all all of them are really kind of matter, but uh, it's harder to understand the triggers without knowing how the stages of attention and how it works in the first place. Well, it definitely gives you a focus more than anything else. I mean, one of the the things I, I and you kind of answered that already is like, how should you read the book? And a lot of authors says, ah, you you know, you can jump around or jump to the chapter you think works best for you. But in this book, really, because it's even though it's an older concept, it, the way you're approaching it is in a in a fresh new uh, way with some amazing research behind it. Uh, Understanding what attention is seems like a pretty fundamental thing. So I know what attention is, but you start reading it and you realize like, oh, wow, attention is it, – it's something you got to – and I hate to say this. You got to be way more attentive of a, uh, about attention. So for you, for our listening audience, what should they do to be more conscious of uh, the concept of attention? I would say one of the key things to really realize – and. I, Attention and memory are intrinsically linked, and you if you think about attention from a memory perspective, it's going to be easier. And so uh, if you don't remember something, you did not pay attention to it. That's the pure one-liner of it. And so these different memory systems control different types of attention, like um, short attention, which is our short-term focus, is controlled by – working memory, which is our short-term memory system that helps us remember content in the short term and then helps us encode and decide which things go into long-term memory. And knowing how short-term memory remembers things, for example, when you talk about phonological or sounds or words, repetition is actually the way we typically try to remember things short-term versus visual-spatial attention, which is much more about... uh, items that stand out in key scenes. And so um, it really is just about thinking about uh, from terms of how is this going to be memorable. And I talk a lot in the book about certain triggers that make things stick in memory much more than others. For you, when you were gathering this information and and putting it into book form, what was your aha moment where something crystallized for you? You kind of knew about it before, but when you were putting the book together, you were, wow, and you you really had an aha moment and and it, it struck as a truth right down to your core oh a book is like a hundred aha moments <laughs> and 400 bash your head into a wall moments <laughs> i don't know if i had a single one i had lots of little ones for me it was when at the very end when i was doing some of the final interviews after doing my research and all the inner and all the final interviews were falling into line with the seven triggers because it took me a while to figure out what the triggers were because it's not me picking them randomly. It's me going through all the scientific research and the dozens of interviews to find the common themes, and those are the seven common themes. And it was a relief when I did one of the interviews, and it was just like they just hit every single one of the triggers. I feel so much better. I actually got them all. 
Um, let's talk about the triggers because everybody's saying, well, what are these seven triggers? So let's just touch on very, very lightly. Um, go through the list and, and explain in, in one or two sentences what each trigger is, and then we'll go deeper into a couple of them. So, all right, I'm going to give a very quick overview then. Um, first one's automaticity. It is uh, our automatic reaction to certain sights, sounds, colors, and sensory stimuli. It's how we react it, if there's the sound of a gunshot in the sky or a specific color uh, and how we react to certain colors and certain symbols. Uh, framing is the fact that we pay attention only to things that fall within our frame of reference and to based on our worldview and based on our philosophy, based on our bio- biology. And things that fall outside of it, we don't ever pay attention to. And it's part of the reason why uh, gun, gun control, if you just, got, just talk about that, you'll have two completely different reactions. Then there's uh, disruption, which is a very powerful trigger, which is that we pay attention to the people and things um, that violate our expectations of the world. There's reputation, which is that we pay attention to reputable sources, specifically experts, authority figures, and the crowd. Re- reward. The reward trigger, which is we pay attention to intrinsic and extrinsic rewards and the methods necessary to achieve them. Mystery, which is the mystery trigger, we pay attention to uh, incomplete thoughts and incomplete storylines and mysteries of all types of storytelling. And then acknowledgement, which is the most powerful of all the triggers, which is that we pay attention to the people and things that acknowledge us and validate us and understand us in some way, and pay attention to us. Now, did you put this in the order of least effective to most effective, or is it more random? Chronological. Uh, Attention comes in three stages, right? And immediate attention is the first stage. It's automatic. It's within a few milliseconds. Short attention is conscious attention. It's uh, minutes or hours. And then there's long attention, which is long-term interest over time. And so these kind of triggers and the order they are kind of correspond with the chronology of it. Uh, Automaticity is uh, the ultimate tool for immediate attention, while disruption is a great tool for short attention, while acknowledgement is much more a long attention tool. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, Google's considered a um, basically a disruptor. And they've got a reputation for going into a, an industry they have nothing to do with and say, well, we're going to get into this industry and totally disrupt it. And then once they've basically got the industry to wake up and actually be more conscious and do stuff uh, or create products or services that are more in tune with what the public really needs, then they kind of step out of it. And they did that with the, the 7-inch tablet. They're uh, doing it now with uh, ridiculous bandwidth capabilities. And uh, they're going to step into to the telephone industry right now. So I think it's fascinating that they're kind of mixing two of the triggers um, as part of their philosophy of business. When you're trying to capture attention, it's not about just, you know, one trigger. Like what I think – what I try to do all the time is um, when I'm like looking at a project or something that I, I'm trying to get attention for, I kind of look at the seven triggers and how it applies. Big thing to really think about is – whether you need to go after immediate or short or long attention. There's a difference between trying to get your debuting your product and trying to get loyal fans to your product over the long term. Well, well building a community is a, uh, is a classic case because who isn't building a community? Even if you don't think you're building a community, you are building a community. So for you know, going back to the seven triggers, can you skip over 
you know, it's, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to skip over the automatic trigger. I'm going to go into a framing disruption, and then I'm going to jump to acknowledgement. Or should you try and be a little bit more uh, linear about it and basically go for in this specific order and escalate towards that final acknowledgement trigger? The triggers are not for, you can't, you're going to rarely be able to use all seven in the same situation. Like I said before, it really, it's, it's over time. And certain triggers are only going to work for short attention versus long attention. And so really, like I said, my thing is like, look at the project you're doing and then pull out the triggers and see which ones really could apply and see how many of them you can actually apply. Because sometimes you can't. Sometimes it doesn't make, like sometimes automaticity may not matter as much as say, uh, building a mystery or maybe uh, the reputation. It just depends. It just depends on what your goals are. And so I usually recommend just like pull out the triggers and look at each one and see uh, where they match. You could also look at it this way as well as being conscious of the triggers, the way you approach a project or approach uh, something you're trying to get out there uh, in a totally different way because at least you have these things that you could be focusing on, whereas before you may have been doing an advertisement and then a follow-up blog series and then sending out your salespeople to make telephone calls and then wrapping that around a story and eventually having a big launch and blah, 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 blah. If you're more conscious of it, it's way more strategic how you and when you uh, introduce different key communication devices to get your message, uh, number one, uh, breaking through the crowd, uh, and then number two, having people actually remember that message. Well, it's the remembering of the message that I think a lot of people forget a lot of times because as you and I both know, it's not enough to have people pay attention, say, to your commercial, your ad. It's got to convert people into customers and users and way too many brands forget that over and over again. And there's like there's little there's little techniques and some bigger ones that uh, make things stick in the memory. For example, in the mystery trigger, I talk about the Zignaric effect. And this comes from a Soviet researcher in the 1950s called Bluma Zignarik, who discovered that we have a much stronger memory for incomplete tasks. And it just shows that when a task is incomplete or you have a cliffhanger, you have a much stronger memory of that item and it sticks in your brain for longer and it's much more powerful in long-term retention. Um, the bizarreness effect has also an impact, which is the things that are more bizarre uh, both capture our attention and stick in memory a lot longer. And it's partly because of our defense mechanisms. We're always looking for strange and bizarre things because it could be a potential threat or it could be potential food. Wow. As you're talking, I'm thinking back to all these things, at least different projects that I'm doing, and I'm getting all these memory triggers going on. It's like, oh my God, that now that explains this. And oh, now I know why that works so well. So by reading the book, you become, it shifts your consciousness about why things work and, and how they work on a day-to-day level. It's definitely shifted the way I've been think I've thought and made me more conscious of my attention and how it works and how the attention of others works. And when I look at a campaign or something that goes viral, I have a different kind of understanding of why it is, why it's captivating, that sort of thing. Yeah, be, be able to break down stuff so you can understand them in, in a more core way makes a huge difference in your ability to learn and, and become uh, a more refined or more focused expert uh, for that particular field, so regardless if, if you're into the field of communication or you're a CEO, if your job is to teach children. It's the, all the knowledge that is, that is in this book, more than anything else, I think, awakens the possibilities to be way more focused and be a much better communicator. 
attention, as I've probably said multiple times in this interview, is fundamental to every industry. Um, teachers, for example, make this very common mistake in communication, which you also mentioned, which is that they put tons of bullet points in their slides. And what that promotes is divided attention. They, they're tr you're trying to make your students divide their attention between you, the speaker, and the notes on the screen. And you're never going to win. And in fact, neither do the students because their attention is split and their ability to encode their, that information to memory is much weaker. The best kind of slides are ones that have no bullet points, that only have a few words, that only have some images that kind of exemplify the points you're trying to uh, pass across. It just always baffled me. The teachers would put all their like all the information on bullet point slides because why would you listen to the teacher when it's all right there? You want people to listen to you to uh, absorb that information because they're going to remember it much better that way anyway. It's just a better communication tool. It just baffles me. Well, and then, and then there's also meetings I've been into where it goes one le one level beyond that, where the guy actually hands out printed versions of the of the PowerPoint, where you don't even have to look at the person. You can just spend the meeting going through the bullet points, which is a com horrible way to try and get the information across because the bullet point has no value, has no pure communication value, because it needs an explanation by the expert. Uh, so you really. It's all ass backwards. I mean, I know so many organizations that hate PowerPoint presentations. Number one, they're boring uh, because they're not done right. And number two, they don't get anything out of them. So I think, you know, there's a real fundamental problem with, with the way people communicate uh, in an office to a group, even in, in telephone conversations. Uh, there's no agenda. There's nothing planned. There's no goals. So it kind of waffles on, even if they're... At, at a, a special presentation and it's the CEO coming and he's got some points that he wants to do. If he's got a PowerPoint presentation behind him, even they're not focused because they're constantly thinking, oh, have I got the order in, uh, it, have I got it in the wrong order? Have I talked about bullet point four instead of bullet point three? Instead of just having a big graphic with a key, one huge keyword that is a reminder about the speaker about what they're going to speak for for the next five minutes, glances, oh yeah, talk for the five minutes, wrap up, and then click to the next slide, and then you've got another graphic that basically uh, is very, very powerful, and people's mind gets jolted, and they say, oh, okay, now I'm going to concentrate about something totally new. It's, it's just frustrating. <laughs> There's nothing inherently wrong with actual PowerPoints and actual keynotes. It's when people start throwing the bullet points in tons of words. Just rule of thumb. There should not be more than five words on your slides. It should be an image or just a few words that emphasize your key points. My style is a little bit different than most people's presentation styles, but you don't need – like it's supposed to enhance the presentation with animations, with images, not with more words. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's and, – and you know, not to – beat up people that have a hard time presenting, but really there's nothing worse than somebody having all these bullet points and they actually turn and read the bullet points for the people that are looking at the screen. It's, it's wow, let's be bored, let's fall asleep, and let's start thinking about something, anything other than what you're trying to get across. Hopefully with the book, they'll be able to figure out a way to drop that. It, it just takes time and practice. You just have to get away from that habit. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you interviewed a ton of people, and I know this is a totally unfair question, but did you have a favorite interview, an interview that went, wow, that was awesome? <laughs> uh, I actually get asked that question more often than I thought I would. <laughs> so, no, there, there were some interviews that were just really fascinating, not because 
uh, everyone I interviewed was fascinating, but some people I never thought I'd have a chance to sit down with or uh, just had a different perspective, which is what I really value. And so, for example, Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Super Mario, was a fantastic interview. And, you know, he created Super Mario, Zelda, uh, Link, Metroid, Pikmin, uh, Star Fox, all the classics. And he went into, like, great detail about why he thought Super Mario had become so popular, about, you know, why it had captured our immediate attention, our short attention and long attention, why Mario was, you know, the icon it is today. And, you know, one of the interesting things, for example, I learned was that uh, when he first created Super Mario, they the technology restricted them to only 16 by 16 pixels. And so that was all they had to make Mario. And, you know, what Miyamoto and his team is, they ran with that. So how do you make a character distinctive when you have only that much space? So first thing he thought about was in the 16 by 16 pixels, you can't uh, see noses. You have to make it big. That's why Mario has a big nose. But it's hard to define when they try to do it. So they put a mustache on him. So that's why he has the mustache. Then they put on the cap because it's so you can't do hair in 16 by 16. So that's why he has the red cap. And then a shirt and pants really doesn't show very well on that size. So that's why he has overalls. And that's why they're red because it stands out. And that's why he has those iconic things of his look. And that was just a fascinating thing to learn from Miyamoto. One other person who just fascinated me also was David Copperfield. Copperfield, I've never met anybody who is so thoughtful about every little interaction, about how everything and everyone perceives his performance and just everything. He's so he's always thinking about how to best please his audience and the frame of reference in which his audience is in, you know. And if you don't know him off the onset, you might think like it's odd, but as you like dig deeper, it's just he does his homework so well, and it was so fascinating to get into his mind. It sounded to me like uh, Steve Jobs with his his keynote speeches. If you, I mean, they could have done a book on it, but basically, uh, there were rehearsals and rehearsals and rehearsals for months and months and months, and like refining and refining and getting it better and getting it better, and the amount of time and energy he puts into a one-hour presentation was mind-boggling but look at the results you were captivated there was teasers there was that uh, classic moment at the end oh and one last thing i mean all those things they weren't just off the cuff they were meticulous management meticulous detail amazing amount of work that go into a presentation but that's the level of communication you got to be doing these days to really drill down and get people's attention. So this goes back to the frame of reference side. You really got to know how your audience is thinking, you know? You've got to really know how your audience like the little details that are going to make or break a presentation or make or break something. So an example, uh, I remember I wrote about this and so Revlon maybe a decade ago did a perfume based off the camellia flower. And it was successful in the US. Because it smells nice. And so they're like, let's expand this internationally. And they expanded to South America. And it's a complete dud in South America. Now, here's the reason why. The flower, they've, uh, unbeknownst to them, is, you know, is a common flower in funerals. And so Revlon was literally marketing the smell of death to their audience. If that little detail, if they'd even like, done the research to figure that one out, they would have never come out with that perfume there 
And so that's just a, like a tiny little frame of reference that probably cost the company millions and a lot of embarrassment. Well, you know, we kind of get into a, a predicament, right? Because if you spend too much time on the detail and trying to perfect something, it never comes to market. And, and that's kind of like the pivot strategy. You do, if it fails, you pivot and you try and, and recover with your existing resources. Uh, and then you've got the other school is like, yeah, but if we dug down, we had a better business plan, we were more organized, and we thought this through and we researched it more, we wouldn't have to pivot. And so it's you kind of try to figure out a hybrid of the two, where it's you, you, you're not trying to perfect, but you're also, you got to put a little bit of due diligence in. But here, here you got to put in the due diligence and understand your market. But um, the thing about it, why uh, the lean startup movement has been so successful is because you don't, the big, most important type of research is launching products to see how people react. You really don't know whether or not people are going to take to a product or not until you put it out on the market. Now, there's lots of ways to avoid really bad markets and really bad products by researching and knowing your competitors. And it still shocks me when startups pitch me. Like, they pitch me, and then I ask about these four companies, and they don't know any of them, and they're all in their market. And I'm like, you did not do your research. Come back to me when you've actually done your research. I did actually have to say this to somebody once. It was brutal, but they needed to hear it because if you haven't done your research, how am I going to trust you? And it goes all the way to number eight or, or, or your seventh trigger, which is um, the acknowledgement trigger uh, being the most powerful. And, and I'd like to dig deep into this a little bit. Basically, if you don't understand who you're communicating to or who you're creating a product for or a service for, why would you expect them to listen to you and remember your service? You know, so it, it, it's super critical. So let's talk a little bit about the power of the acknowledgement trigger. Why do people react to it the way they do uh, compared to all the other triggers? So the acknowledgement trigger, um, as a reminder for everyone, is that we pay attention to the people and things that pay attention to us and provide us with validation and empathy and understanding. And it's because, uh, unlike probably the rest of it, uh, acknowledgement is a fundamental human need. Uh, and so one interesting thing I've started talking about, and in fact, I have a TEDx talk that will be published soon about this subject. The Part of the reason we want to be famous and that we care about fame, and 57% of U.S. adults daydream about fame on, our, on an occasional basis, part of the reason more than narcissism or power or status is because we believe fame will bring us belongingness and acceptance and community from others. And so acknowledgement really kind of boils down to community and identity. And so when you're trying to capture attention, it really is about showing and validating your audience and showing that you care. And, you know, I talk about, for example, how Taylor Swift does it. And she wraps Christmas gifts for Swiftmas for just a dozen of her fans, and she YouTubes it. And she sends it out and it's a huge sensation a huge hit uh she did not and she did not have to send a gift to everybody to show she cared only just a few and then showed what she was doing and that really had an impact what about for organizations that you know get okay we want to uh use the acknowledgement trigger uh and they don't have the built-in community like Taylor Swift, um, and and that's one of the things with fame and re brand recognition, at least, is it gives you a huge leg up. If you're trying to develop your brand and, and make it more of a household name or, or something that triggers for people when they, they have that moment, how can people build towards that? There's no shortcut is the first thing. You have to build this over time. And it's like Taylor Swift's, your Taylor Swift's and your Beyonce's did build it over decades, over time. 
uh, to build that audience. But it's really about the combination of creating opportunities for your audience to um, your existing audience to participate and bring their friends in and having an identity that you stand for. Um, but in the early days, it's about just getting the attention of people. The disruption trigger is more important in the early days to get people to know who you are, what your product is, or what you're trying to market. And then you kind of expand from there. Uh, there is no simple solution. You just got to consistently create content, the big three C's, and use that to build a community and build an identity. You know, I think about how Mint did it years ago. Mint, the you know, personal finance site that got acquired by Intuit for hundreds of millions, they had the Mint blog. And it started out as nothing, but they started posting not about themselves, which is a big mistake a lot of people do, but about personal finance tips, which is perfectly within their brand. And suddenly their content was so helpful and so useful, they were getting shared all across the web, and it was a huge marketing tool for them and a huge success story. It just takes time, and if you have that quality content and you acknowledge your audience and you have an identity, you will eventually build that audience. Back in the day, if you were smart and you had consistency or did what all the other big major brands have done for, for many, many, many years, uh, you would have done very, very well in social media. Uh, but these days, and this takes us all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, there is so much stuff out there. There is so much dross. How does how does somebody do that? How does somebody build a community when, when people's attention gets dragged in all different directions all day long? It's the billion-dollar question, right? <laughs> I know. It's the billion-dollar book. I, you know, so, um, there, again, there is no one single solution to the problem. You've got the disruption trigger will get you people will get people to shift their attention. The framing trigger will help you understand what they're looking for and providing value. In the end, it's really just providing that value and providing those incentives and rewards that uh, will get people to go through the process. One of the big things in communities I should have mentioned before is the reward trigger and how people use not incentives but post-action rewards to make delight audiences and and reinforce behavior because. Um, Post-action reward is a reward you receive after taking an action without you knowing it's going to happen. It's a surprise. And it's much more effective than an incentive, which is you do this, I'll give you this. Because the latter, the incentives, make us feel like cattle. But the former shows that you care, and it adds another layer to it. Uh, Again, there is no one single answer to this question. This is kind of the fundamentals uh, I talk about in captivology. You just have to do – you have to get their attention – and then you have to keep their attention and you have to build the content and have to build the community that builds that around. But it is absolutely possible to get past all the distractions. You just have to know how attention works. Yeah. And this book is awesome for that. Hey, where do people go if they want to learn more or they've read the book and they, they just want to keep going? So if you want to be if you want to check out the book, Captivology.com or go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 800 CEO Read, search Captivology. It's all there. C-A-P-T-I-V-O-L-O-G-Y. And if you are interested in my stuff, at Ben Parr on every social network, benparr.com. I am very easy to find on those interwebs. If somebody is going to try and, and connect with you and, and join your community or, or trying to connect with you on a, on a higher level, what's the best platform? LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter? Where do you hang out the most? Where do you like to build your community the most? Oh, I have it's so spread out sometimes. Um, if I mean, tw- I would say Twitter or my Facebook page are probably going to be the most simple ways to connect with me on a regular basis. 
We've been listening to Ben Parr, Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention, and boy, did this ever catch my attention when I was reading it. You guys should check it out. I think it's a very, very powerful tool for anybody in basically any business. In fact, even parents could use this to try and talk to their teenagers. So check it out. Lots and lots of great information. Ben, thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.